starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let me pray. Lord, we come before you humbly this morning, knowing that we need you. We thank you that you have given us the gift of your word in which you have revealed to us the truth about your son, and about the fact that not only you are you our king, but you are a gracious king who wants to seek and save those who are lost. And Lord, we're thankful for that this morning. Lord, we need you to illumine our minds so we might understand your word. And Lord, to soften our hearts so that we might receive it with joy and that we might live it out and that this community might be changed as a result of the work that you do by your spirit through your word in us. When I pray this morning as we look at it together that we would be faithful to attend to it with joy and thankfulness for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christmas is kind of an interesting time of the year because there are so many varying responses that people have to Christmas, or at least I should say maybe varying ways that they celebrate this time of year, right? First, you seem to have... Um, This whole subject of God and religion come up in a way that it doesn't often during the rest of the year. And and with that comes sort of interesting occurrence that happens. For some reason, um, conservatives decide that Christmas is the time. Sorry, political conservatives. I'm one of you, but I'm sorry. Think that it's the time to go to war with the liberals in the culture. And on the other side, the liberals uh, get a little offended. Sorry to those of you out there who are that. Get a little offended that the conservatives are pushing Jesus on them and Christmas on them, and they, they kind of want to have it withdrawn. That's one kind of response that happens. It's an unfortunate political response. Both groups seem to miss the whole point of Christmas, which is to worship Jesus as king. The second kind of response you see out there is not a political one. It's kind of more of a, of a family sort of one. It's this kind of let's all get together with family. And I'm going to be real here because I know some of you experience this. You don't always like each other in your family. (laughs) 
but you figure enough eggnog might cure that, <laughs> right? And you get together and give gifts and paste on a plastic smile and all pretend to love each other, right? Now, in some cases, you guys have these incredible happy families that get together, and God bless you. Um, wish it was that way for all of us, but you guys understand what often happens. There are some people who find this season a time that's just depressing, They've lost something precious to them during this time of the year. Maybe a spouse or a child, maybe a parent. And they might feel alone and depressed and sad in this time. Some people out there like that. And there are other people who are um, just loving it, loving it, especially children. And they're loving it because they want to celebrate Jesus, right? No, because they want to open as many presents as they can possibly open. And there are some out there who are like children, but they're grown, right? (laughs) You understand what I'm saying. There are also people who see Christmas as a time to help um, with charity, to give to the poor, um, to do things that we don't often do. You know, and and a lot of these are, are great, great things that happen, and some of them are sad and terrible things that happen. But most of them seem to miss oftentimes the main point of what Christmas is all about. Christmas is ultimately about a time in which is marked on our calendar where Christians, people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, gather together to worship him as their gracious king and to thank him for coming and giving his life for them. That's what it's ultimately about. And it seems to be missed by so many. Seems to be missed by so many. I I really see generally two responses to that whole question that come up. There's really three. One is is the right response of worship. But there's two other ones I see happening out there among people. One is a religious response. Okay? I better get to church on Christmas. Now, I don't really go any other times of the year but I better get there on Christmas. Now, I'm not picking on those of you who are doing that. There's the other response, which is the irreligious response. I better take as much time as I can to party it up because I got all this time out of work. It's time to kick back a few, as many as I possibly can, right, and have a great time. So there's a religious response and there's an irreligious response. There's a response of I want to party it up and there's a response of I want to get religion, But what often doesn't happen is the response of worship. It's the response of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. People respond to him from a religious perspective because they think that Jesus is king. They actually intellectually assent to that truth. And and they may not entirely get all of it. They at least in some way think that God is there and he rules, so I better give some sort of religious response. But what they don't seem to understand is that he's gracious and that he wants a relationship with them. On the other side, people respond um, with kind of the irreligious response where they party up, have a great time, avoid the church, avoid any sort of worship of God and do whatever they want with their lives because they think in some twisted way that God is gracious and will forgive anything they do, but they don't think he's king and deserves their loyalty and obedience. 
Now, some of you might say, hey, well, look, what about those of us who don't think either? We're, we're atheists. Well, God doesn't believe in atheists. Have you ever thought about that? He doesn't believe in atheists. And so I'm really not even going to address atheists today. Because the fact of the matter is that everybody deep down knows that God exists. And in some way, they behave in relationship to that. Everyone. I, I, I have yet to really meet a pure philosophical atheist. If I go down the road with them, at least at some point, they'll come to being a, an agnostic. And frankly, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, is that the wrath of God is revealed against mankind because of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, they know it's true, but they don't want to submit to it. And so they suppress it so they can live however they want. So that's why I say that ultimately that category for me is, is really irrelevant. The categories that matter are the religious response or the irreligious response and then the right response, which is worship. If you understand that Jesus is a gracious king, then you're going to respond to him with a joyful trust and worship. That's how you're going to respond. If you understand, if your heart is opened up to who he is, then you will be brought to your knees in a joyful praise. That's the response that occurs. So as we look at the story of the Magi, the story of the three wise men, right? Well, we're going to dispel that today. We look at the story of these wise men. I want us to see first that Jesus is a gracious king. And second, I want you to see the three different responses that can be given to this gracious king. Matthew actually begins his gospel, this book, with the genealogy before he jumps into the story of Magi. And I want to give you this context really quickly. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. He says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What Matthew wants to do is begin by giving a genealogy. Why? Because genealogies were important to the Jews. And why were genealogies important to the Jews? Because they wanted to know what their legal lineage was. Why do they want to know their legal lineage? Because they had rights to land, inheritance rights to certain lands. They also wanted to know whether they were from the tribe of Levi, which would mean that they would be a part of the priesthood, or whether they were from the tribe of Judah, which would mean that they were a part of the ruling class or a ruling tribe. And specifically what they want to know in this case and what Matthew wants to point out to us is that Jesus is of the legal lineage of David, who is from the tribe of Judah. And therefore, Jesus, because he's of the legal lineage of David, is king of Israel. He wants to make that clear to us. Not only does he, though, give a lineage from a human perspective, he, in a sense, gives a divine genealogy. Because he doesn't want to just say that Jesus is the legal son of David in that sense. Therefore, an heir to the throne. But he also wants to tell us that not only is this human, is he a human king of Israel, but he is himself God and therefore king of all things. He wants to make that abundantly clear. And so look down at verse 18 of chapter one. He says this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Mary is his mother and God is his father. And he is both the God. 
He's both God and man. He is both the king of the universe and the human king of Israel. And Matthew wants to make this very clear through his genealogy right from the outset. But not only does he want to tell us he's king, he wants to tell us that he's a gracious king. And so he gives some context to that. First of all, telling us, and he does it two ways when he tells us he's a gracious king. One, by giving us a genealogy in which Jesus is a descendant of sinful human beings. Think of this. Every single person in this genealogy, this human genealogy, is a sinner. And God sent his royal son through sinners. Second thing that he does in there, that text that's clues show us he's gracious, is he points out four women. In verse uh, number three, he points out this. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So he points out Tamar, a Gentile woman. He also points out Rahab, a Gentile woman and a prostitute. He points out Ruth, another arguably Gentile woman. And then in verse 6, the second part, he points out the wife of Uriah, who is, who is Bathsheba, another Gentile woman. And he's making a statement here in this genealogy. He's telling us that there are four Gentile women, all of whom are sexually suspect and the Messiah comes through them. He's gracious. He's gracious. He goes on and gives us two, gives us a name and a title for him that also tells us is gracious. First, when Joseph is thinking, you know what, I'm going to divorce Mary because Mary has come back after visiting her cousin Elizabeth and she's pregnant or her aunt. She's pregnant, so I'm going to divorce her. That's what Joseph thinks. So he's going to do it quietly, though. But in the midst of that time, what happens is an angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, she's a child from the Holy Spirit. And she's going to give birth to a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus. You know what the name? Because he will do what? Save his people. You know what the name Jesus means? Yahweh saves. In other words, his human name, the name he has given, is that God is gracious and saves. Second thing he's told about him is that his name is Emmanuel, or a title for him is Emmanuel. Why Emmanuel? That means God with us. He's not a cold, distant, angry king who has a bunch of rules for you to follow, and if you don't, keep in line then he's just going to spank you right he's going to put you down in a hot place for eternity and that's all he is that's all we want to know about him no there's so much more to know about him he is a gracious king who loves his people who is not only transcendent lord but he is imminent he is with us he is among us he cares for us he wants us to know that and that's the context for the story of the magi now he says in chapter 2, verse 1, as we look at the Magi, we will see that Jesus is the gracious king. And three responses to him. Look at verse 1. First thing that we find out from the Magi is that Jesus is shown to be king. He's shown to be king in four ways. Look at the first one. It's just that they call him the king. Verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, this, this whole scene is often misunderstood because when we, 
when we look at our Christmas time decorations, right, we inevitably see manger scenes, right? And there's the baby Jesus, right, looking blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Don't ever get that. It's a Jew, okay? There's Jesus, and there's all the little people and, and happy camels. Apparently, there's some supernatural occurrence for the camels and animals around. And they're all there, happy, and there's the little shepherds. And, and then there's these wise men, three of them always. And people think that they all arrived at the birth. The wise men were, were not at the birth of Jesus. That's not how this scene occurred at all. In fact, they came months and possibly up to two years later. Here's the story if we follow. Jesus is born in Bethlehem in approximately 5 to 6 B.C. We know that because he was born during the time of King Herod. King Herod died in 4 B.C. And we know that King Herod from the text in Matthew 2, which we'll look at in a little bit, King Herod thought that potentially, based on the time he was given by the wise men, that Jesus could be up to two years old. And so we know that Jesus was somewhere between several months old to two years old by the time the Magi or the wise men finally arrived. And if you harmonize, what happens is Jesus is born. They take him to the temple in Jerusalem to be circumcised. Um, 40 day, within 40 days, uh, Mary then goes to the temple for the rite of purification it seems to be that, according to Luke, they then go to Nazareth, their old hometown, which is 90 miles away, collect some of their things and come Beth, back to Bethlehem, and now we're living in a house. And um, at this point, the wise men show up, and they come into Jerusalem, and they actually go into a house, according to verse 11 of this chapter, and according to verse 16... When Herod goes to kill them, verse 16 says. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became uh, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. And so here they come. Jesus is somewhere in the range of probably a year to two years old. And they show up in Jerusalem, okay? Jesus is in Bethlehem and living in a house. What do these guys look like? Well, a lot of people don't understand what the wise men were about. They're from an area called Persia. Persia was actually a kingdom that the Roman Empire really was not ruling over. In that area, Persia kind of had a lot of independence. And they were pretty powerful. And Rome didn't tend to mess with them, and they didn't tend to mess with Rome. And these guys are... From this area, which Persia is obviously also known as at one time as Babylon, right? That same region. And these guys are some sort of astrologers. They're star watchers. They're religious guys. Really what they are is in Persia, they're king makers. They're king makers. And so they see a star appear. They've been reading the Old Testament. Where did they get the Old Testament? It had been there for years when Nebuchadnezzar in 600 and something B.C. came and conquered Israel. He took several of the Jews, Daniel. You guys have heard of Daniel in the lion's den, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He took them and he took many of their relics from the temple and their Jewish books. And they were actually trained in some way as this kind of a wise man among the people. Daniel was. And they had the Jewish books there. So guys, 
they had these texts for years and had been studying the Old Testament. And they see this star come and they follow the time given in Daniel and they know based on prophecies that the birth of the Messiah has occurred. The birth of the Messiah, the Old Testament has occurred. And so they come and there were probably 50 to 100 wise men. Potentially, that seems to be, according to most scholars, about the size of the group they would travel in as far as just wise men. They also had all their royal horses and they would have had military guys with them, an army. They think that the scene, some scholars I read, think the scene may have been up to a thousand soldiers with the wise men coming into Jerusalem on horses. Now you can see in verse three, look at verse three. When the when Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled. You can see why Herod, the king might be troubled. Here comes a thousand soldiers with these kingmakers, these wise men from Persia coming in and saying, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? And Herod's thinking, I thought I was king of the Jews. And he's troubled. And it says then, and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Why is all Jerusalem troubled? Here's why Herod was a nasty man. I mean, Herod's a guy who actually killed a couple of his sons and one of his wife all to protect his throne. He actually gathered up most of the leaders in Israel, had them imprisoned, and here was the order. Um, when I die, kill all of them. Because when I die, people will rejoice. But if you kill all these people that they love, then there will be weeping on the day of my death. That's what this guy was about. That's why all Jerusalem is troubled with him. You understand that? When Herod's troubled, so is everybody else. He's like some politicians I know. But anyway, side note. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Had to do it. Now this man is confronted. Herod is confronted with this claim about the birth of the Messianic king. And Herod wants him eliminated. But he doesn't want to tell the Magi he wants him eliminated. And uh, instead he wants to act like he wants to help them find him. But he wants to help them find him so that he can kill him. And so he calls together religious leaders of Israel. Look at verse 4. And assembling all Jerusalem. or When Herod the king heard this he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he brings together all the religious leaders of Israel, those who know the Old Testament, and says, where does the prophecy say? Where does the Old Testament say the Christ is to be born? This king of Israel, where is he to be born? And this, this answer leads into the second evidence that Matthew gives that Jesus is king. Not only do the Magi announce he's the king of the Jews, but now there's this fulfillment of prophecy that we begin to happen. And look at what they say, this fulfillment of prophecy. They told him, verse 5, this is what the leader said. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They cite Micah 5, 2, which states the Messianic king would be born in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? That's the city of King David. And he would sit on David's throne forever. 
So Herod asked the Magi to tell him when the star appeared. When did it appear? Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Because he wanted to figure out how old the, the baby Jesus would probably be. So, they, um, so then he sent him out to Bethlehem to find him. So he tells him, okay, he's about two years old. It's somewhere in the last two years this has happened. Okay? And it's in Bethlehem. And so then he sends them out. Look at verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. So they traveled to Bethlehem following this star. Now, a lot of people ask the question, um, what's the star? Some try to speculate that the star was um, a coming together of an alignment of Saturn and Jupiter, which actually happened around 5 to 6 BC. And so some think that that might be what it is. The text doesn't tell us. It's an awfully odd behavior for the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter to move and so they can follow him to, their, to his home. So I don't tend to buy that argument. It seems to me that it's a miraculous sort of appearance. And why? We don't really know, ultimately. The text doesn't give us enough information, but it seems to be some sort of miraculous star. But why would God lead them with the star? What's the point of that? Well, according to Numbers 24, 17, it says this, and this is a prophecy. There shall arise a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. In other words, there is going to be a king who arises from Israel and that star marks him off. So theologically, what is happening is that the star is marking Jesus as the promised messianic king, which is another prophetic fulfillment that really Matthew's pointing us to. And what Matthew tells us next is that when the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced and went into the house, their house into the house and fell on their faces and worshiped him. Look what it says in verse nine. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a really interesting phrase. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I'll get back to it in a minute. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So we see three things here. One, they fall down and worship him, showing that he is king. And two, they give gifts to him. Why? Why gold and frankincense and myrrh? Frankincense and myrrh are two spices that wealthy people often received or royalty often received. Gold, the same thing. You know, it's not a spice, but something that you gave to royalty or to someone who's wealthy. And so these guys are giving sacrificially. They're recognizing that Jesus is the king. So they fall down and worship him and they give him gifts. And they rejoice and they see him as the king. But they also see him as gracious. In verse 6, it says that he will shepherd my people as part of the prophecy. He's not only king, but he's gracious. He'll care for, feed, protect, love, bind up the wounded, seek for the lost. He's that kind of king. 
He's the king they could rejoice in, that they could approach freely. They go running to his house, essentially. They can't wait to get in front of him. They're not just desperately afraid of him and thinking they have to maintain their distance. They actually come to him and they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That's kind of like a fourfold way of saying they were joyful. That's how they see him is a gracious king who they should fear and revere and worship and who they should rejoice in and approach and cling to. So how do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond? If you respond to him as a king to be feared and revered and but yet ungracious and cold and distant. Do you respond to him as gracious and forgiving, but not as someone who deserves your worship and obedience? Or do you respond to him with joyful worship? Look, you might say, I don't respond in any of those ways that I know of. Here's the fact. Jesus is Lord. He is on the throne and he is gracious. And so a non-response is, in fact, a response because he will not be ignored. Well, we see three ways in the text that he's responded to. The first one is irreligious hostility, irreligious hostility. What does Herod want with Jesus? He wants him dead. Now, I'm not suggesting that those of you who are irreligious are thinking to yourself consciously, I'd like to kill Jesus. Okay, but you're irreligious and and hostile to God in the sense that you're rejecting him and you're doing whatever you want with your life and you don't care that he's king. You're going to be sovereign over your own life. You're like the disobedient son or the, I guess, irreligious son in the prodigal son parable. You're this son who says, you know what? I want what my father has to give me and I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it on wild living, but I don't want my father. There's a second group, um, the religious indifference, these religious leaders who are there who say, you know what? He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And then what do they do? Do they go with the Magi to see him? No, they just kick back. They don't, they're not even interested. They're indifferent. They're like religious people who see him as king, as Lord, to be feared and obeyed and revered, to keep some sort of legalistic rules, but they don't see him as gracious and they don't want to run to him and joyfully trust in him and live their lives with him. It's not what they want. They want to keep a distance from him. They're like the other son in the story of the prodigal son. They're like the good boy who stays home and does exactly what dad asks. They're good conservative little Republicans, right? They keep all the rules. But all they want is the inheritance too. They don't want their dad. The difference between the irreligious person who lives wildly and recklessly and the religious person who lives conservatively and, you know, and wisely. The difference between these two groups is one thing. They get to the same goal through different means. That's it. 
but their goal is the same. In either case, their goal is to get what's on the master's table, but they don't care about the master. In either case. They just want it on its table, and they think they're, they have the best way to get it. That's the only difference. But none of these responses are the proper understanding of Jesus. The proper understanding of Jesus gives a proper response, which is worship, which is to joyfully trust him. It's an understanding of the gospel. And here it is. Listen, God is king and he is holy. And he has created us and we have fallen away and sinned. And we've gone our own way, whether we've done it through our religiosity or we've done it through our irreligiosity. Either way, we have rejected the king. We have. And he is holy and cannot look on our sin. Period. He must judge it if he's just. But God is not just king. He is also a king who loves his people and is gracious. And you know what he does? He says, I'm not just going to leave you there under my judgment. I am going to send my son to seek and save those who were lost. He is a king who loves you deeply and wants to restore you to himself. But the only way he can restore you to himself is if he judges that sin. And if he somehow... If you somehow are righteous. So what does he do? He sends his son. And what does Jesus, the birth of Christ at Christmas, stand for for all of us? It's the coming of our Savior, our Lord. And you know what he comes and he does? He comes and he lives the perfect life that we failed to. He is obedient to his father. And he pursues his father, not for what's on his father's table, but because he loves his father. And he's obedient to him. In every way that we failed to be. And then he goes to the cross and he pays the penalty that's due to all of us for our sin. And he raised from the dead. So that if we trust in him, I want you to hear this. If we trust in him, repent of our sins, not only does he forgive us, for our sin. Not only does he forgive us, but he actually credits the righteousness of Christ, his perfect life, to our account. So I've heard preachers say, right out of 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived your life and my life so that he could treat us when we stand before him as if we lived Jesus's life. It's the gospel. If you understand that, you respond with joyful trust and that issues in a life of obedience to your king. Not obedience because you think you're going to get something for it, but obedience because you've already gotten everything in Christ Jesus. There's nothing more you can add. You just receive.
Let me pray. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for your word and and your son whom you sent to be our gracious king and to live among us. Lord, to live among us in a perfect way that we failed to and to die for us, to pay a penalty due us and to raise from the dead and conquer the grave and give us assurance that you are our Lord and our King, you are our Savior. Lord, help us to be those who joyfully trust you and who as a result of all the riches that we have received in Christ Jesus, respond in obedience to you. Not to earn anything, Lord, but just because you have already given us everything in Christ and we rejoice in our King. In Jesus' name, amen.